Jesus was with his disciples and they no doubt were praying with him or saw him, probably saw him praying. He would often, the busier things got, the more he would pull away to pray. And so it was during one of those times that they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Or they told him rather, right? And he responded with, he said, when you pray, pray like this. And he prayed a very simple prayer. And we call it the Lord's Prayer. And it's just a, doesn't mean we have to pray that prayer every time we pray. We should not pray that prayer every time we pray. Only that prayer, I should say. Our relationship needs to be a personal one with the Lord. Uh, but it's a great model for our prayers. And partly because, for many reasons, one of them is, is just the way that he that he starts the prayer. But um, he, in that prayer, at the beginning of the prayer, toward the beginning, he says, your kingdom come. So one of the reasons it's great to pray this way is because it's it's usually opposite of the way that we pray. I often go to the Lord just immediately with my requests, which he loves to hear. But I forget about his kingdom and I forget about the fact that, man, he is reigning. He is the one true God. The the most important thing is that his glory fills the earth. that He is the king in people's hearts and over um all the earth and over his creation. And then I orient around that, not around me, uh, and which is how I normally orient. So it's sort of prayer is sort of, if nothing else, a reorientation and the Lord's prayer really reminds us of that. It reorients us. He starts with God, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the next thing he says is what your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, it's the first, well, following hallowed be your name is the first request. It's the first prayer in the prayer, right? That Jesus asked, the first entreaty, your kingdom come. And that's what Jesus came to do is to bring the kingdom of God to earth. That was the gospel that he had to proclaim was he came proclaiming that the kingdom is here. The good news is that the king is here and he's bringing the kingdom with him. And everywhere he goes, the kingdom is spreading. Uh, the good news is that he has br- come to bring us back to God, the father, bring us back into God's family. And that means all sorts of wonderful things. And so the question just is, OK, how does his kingdom come? If, if his glory is to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, which indeed it will and is doing and has been for the past 2000 years. How does that best happen? And a lot of us might answer or we might think knee jerk. OK, crusades, coliseums full of people, mega churches. We think big, right? We think untouchable things that we can't organize or do or be involved in, really. Um, that's for the really, really super gifted speakers. No, um, let me read to you just a bit of some numbers, actually, from a little anecdote from J.D. Greer, who's a pastor up in North Carolina and an author. He wrote a book called Gaining by Losing. He says, the teacher asks the student, now I'm, I'm sort of putting this in my own words, I'm quoting a bit, but um, this is from his book. The teacher asks the students in this classic sort of setup problem, okay, students, and we did this with our, with our kids at house church on Sunday, and they definitely bit the hook. It was great. If you have the choice between receiving $10,000 a day for 30 days, so every day you get, for 30 days you get $10,000 more, or getting one penny doubled each day. Which would you choose? So a penny, day two, you get two pennies because that's a penny doubled. And then you get four pennies on day three. Day four, you get eight pennies because you're doubling four and so on. 
uh, which would you choose? Now, I mean, the hand shot up and our kids mostly picked, I mean, all of them are almost all of them picked the first one, right? I mean, we're looking at what, $300,000 or something. Uh, if this problem feels like a setup, that's because it is. Most middle schoolers pick $10,000 a day. After 30 days, that gives you $300,000. That's a lot of money, especially to a middle schooler. By contrast, a penny doubled daily for 30 days leaves you with a measly two bucks after a week. Okay, But after a month, you've got exactly $10,737,418.23. In other words, the first choice leaves over $10 million on the table. And that is the power, my friends, of multiplication. And so we are talking about exponential <laughs> numbers with our kids, and it, I think that went over their heads, but I think they got the, they got the point about multiplication. Now, Greer goes on to say, middle school students learn the lesson, but have we? Most American churches are still taking choice one when it comes to church growth. Greer writes, tell aspiring megachurch pastor Bob that you have a program by which he can add a thousand people a month to his church for 10 years straight, and he will likely faint with joy. He'll become famous and be thought of as a very, very successful practitioner by almost any measure, right? I mean, a thousand people a month for 10 straight years to his church. But if Bob leads just one person to Christ and disciples that person in Christ um, that year, and if he does that for 30 years, so he's, decide, he's leading, he's preaching the gospel, he's seeing one lost person saved and not stopping there, but then discipling that person as Jesus commanded, teaching him to obey all that Christ commanded, he's investing and pouring into that person for a year. And if he does that, for 30 years. And his disciples, here's the key. And his disciples, the ones he's discipling, but they get, they're lost, they get saved. The Lord saves them through his witness. Then he disciples them for a year. They go and do the same thing. After 30 years, they will have won and discipled almost 1 billion more people to Christ and in Christ than that thousand people per month for 10 years option, the first option. So just like 10,000 a day, for 30 days feels like more of a win than a penny double daily for a month. So a thousand people a month for 30 years feels like more of a win, that mega church option, than discipling one person a year to go and do the same for 30 years. But in both cases, the first choice is far and away the loser. Okay, just like with the math problem to the middle schoolers, so with the church, the first choice is the wrong is the wrong choice. But we have chosen it time again and again in the Western church. But it's time that we uh, repented of our ways. Because over time, the world will be changed. You know, God's kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. It, the, earth, the earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, and his kingdom will spread over every inch of our globe. Um, if we take his commission seriously to go and make disciples who then go and make disciples over time, the world will be changed through the power of multiplicative disciple making. So that's what we are talking today about. Our, our, our formal topic is saturation and sim, saturation, excuse me, and simplicity. So saturation of our geography with the gospel and the kingdom of God and then simplicity of life, which is. Those are both values of Sojourn Houston, and we are in a Life Together sermon series, which we all preach together 
in the fall, all the Sojourn churches in Houston. And we are in our, uh, in our third and fourth of five values. Next week, we finish the series with compassion. But we are in our, uh, we are in the middle of this series of, of life together and we are talking about how, how do we saturate the geography that God, the geographies God's put us in. We want to see the city of Houston saturated with the gospel where every man and woman and child get multiple chances to, to hear and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe on him and be saved and then to grow in him and then to go and, and make more disciples. Um, and, and how, what is one of the values that we've committed to to see that happen is simplicity of life, saying no to a lot of things so that we can say yes to a, to a few things that we believe are the best things so we can see saturation happen. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I started with that example because for obvious reasons, I think um, when we think of saturation, it may seem too big of a thing, but that's actually a very small thing. It's a small thing done over and over and over again, and then repeated. Here's the key. It's not just you doing it. It's you winning someone to Christ, reaching out to them, right? Not necessarily inviting in, but reaching out to them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in relationship with, uh, with your words, articulating the gospel and loving them uh, in word and deed. And then discipling them, pouring your life into them. It, it, um, and then, and we're going to talk about the mechanism for that in a bit, but, um, and then calling them to do the same thing and training them to say, and, and as you, yeah. So that multiplicative effect over time, it, it leads to saturation. It leads to lives change and it leads to world change. And we shouldn't be surprised. That's exactly because it's exactly what our King it's the game plan he's given to us. It's the blueprint. He, he hasn't said, go fill stadiums full of people. He hasn't talked about mega churches. He said, here's the plan for world domination. I have now all authority. I have done everything necessary for the kingdom to come to the farthest reaches of the globe and for creation to be remade. And here's the plan. Here's my commission to you. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I'm with you. I'm not, I'm leaving, but I'm sending you my spirit. And I will be with you till the end of the age to, to see this done. So it's the king's plan. So, of course, it's going to be the thing that makes the most sense, that, that, that saturates the earth the best with his kingdom and that changes lives the best. But it's one person at a time. And so it do, it's not sexy and it doesn't appeal to the glitz and, and, and surface sheen that Americans, uh, tend to tend to be mesmerized by and attracted to like moths to the flame. Right. And so, and so we continue to go for the big stuff, but it's this, it's, it's going small and being intentional and relational and pouring our lives into people and then calling them to do the same that leads to world change. So, you know, I've mentioned the, the great commission. Um, so, so it's, it's counterintuitive, right? World change. It happens one person at a time. And, and the numbers really show us that that is the most effective over time. Again, persevering and uh, and persisting and being patient. It uh, leads to the most stupefying numbers, right? As I just demonstrated with with those with that math problem. Um. So we've talked about the Great Commission, what's referred to by theologians as the Great Commission of Jesus at the end of Matthew, but. 
And so we can think of this commission where Jesus says, I now have all authority because of what I've, my, my life and my death for humanity, for anyone who comes to me. I've opened a way up to come back to the Father through faith in my person, in my work, not in your good works, but in mine. And so through my person on the cross, I've done everything necessary for you to come all the way back to God and to be brought back into his family. So go and share the good news. Go and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'm the king. I'm here. I'm never leaving. Um, and we think of the Great Commission, and well, we should, but we can tend to think of it as something that has just been going on for 2,000 years, something that God's wanted since Jesus said those words. But actually, no. That the Great Commission really makes best sense as of everything Jesus did and said um, in the context of the larger word that he stepped into, right? Jesus didn't start acting uh, in the Gospels, right? Genesis 1 is, is uh, the beginning of God's word to us. And he made all things, he created all things, and then he made us, humanity, as the crown of his creation, and then he commissioned us. And in that commission... He, for the first time, said, okay, here's my commission to you and my plan for my creation, for you to rule over it, for you to have dominion over it, for you to multiply. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my image, and rule it well, right? And that was, his, that was the original Great Commission. But we know the story. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's rule and reign, and they went their own way, and they tried to essentially seat themselves on the throne of the cosmos, just like Satan who tempted them. And they severed themselves from life itself, from God. And death entered in and took over, not only them, but over everything that they had dominion over, over all creation. And so they they ruined what God had made, but God stepped into the middle of, of the curse that they had brought onto themselves in creation with a promise of a son who would set things right. And that son is Jesus. And he came centuries and millennia later. Um, but so we see the great commission originally in Genesis one, the first chapter of the Bible to Adam and Eve, but they failed. And so then we see, we see glimmers of it again when God calls Abram who became Abraham uh, to, to leave everything that he knew and to go to a land that God would show him. And he gives them his promise and he, and the promise is, is basically a redo. And he says, look, I'm going to uh, curse those who curse you, but those who bless you, I will bless. And I'm going to bless every single family, every family of the earth, every family of the earth. I'm going to bless through you. And ultimately that takes us to Jesus because Jesus came from Abraham, from his, uh, well, from his, son's son's son judah from the tribe of judah and he he is the fulfillment of that and through him we are seeing that happen we are seeing the families every family of the earth every type of family from every tribe and tongue be blessed and blessing indeed is found in no one but christ and so so we see it with adam and eve who lost and we see it again with abram that promise that whisper of the promise to, to all families of the earth um, in that sort of multiplication and saturation sort of language. And then we again see it with Jesus who says, look, he gives us, I call the great commission in Matthew 28, the great recommission, because he's saying again as God, but also as Adam, as the God man, as the second Adam, I have come to do what Adam failed to do. And I did not fail. I went all the way to the cross and I buried death. I defeated it. 
I paid for sin and I've risen now days ago. I have risen to new life, not for me, but for a new, for humans. Faith in me means that you're born a second time, not in the first Adam, not in corruption, but in into a relationship with God that will never end. And so this is the good news and go now and be fruitful and multiply essentially, right? By what? By sharing that good news of what I've done and who I am with the world. So that's, those aren't our texts though. Our, our theme is saturation, but it's, it's a theme that is spread throughout the Bible and it's what God has always desired for, for us, but it happens through Christ. It converges on Christ and his cross and then his resurrection. And it, it's made possible through his, uh, his resurrection from the dead. And so we are going to, we are going around spreading that news as, as Christians, as born again humans. Um, and, and really our texts though are in, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 9, and our texts that were assigned to us for, for this theme of saturate, saturation and simplicity, but I've kind of given you the biblical background for it, right? It's a, it's a cover-to-cover biblical theme that means it is God's desire for history. It's his plan for history for, um, for us to saturate, to multiply through discipleship and to, to saturate um, the earth with his image and, and to change, to see people change and to see cultures change through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching folks to obey him and to bow to him as king and to be brought back into his family and to live lives of, of, uh, as ministers of reconciliation where we're begging, where we are appealing to people to be reconciled to God in Christ. And so we see that starting to play out in the book of Acts. And that's where our, that's where our texts are. We have a, just a few verses from Acts 6 and Acts, um, 19. And I'm not going to read all of them, but the, the, the Acts, the Acts uh, passage starts and ends. It's Acts 6, 1 through 7 is our text. And it starts and ends in the same way. It says, now in those days, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So um, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, we see that they're increasing. They're even multiplying, Right. And that really happens on a greater scale. They move from increasing to multiplying really once uh, Stephen is murdered uh, for his faith in Jesus Christ as the Mashiach, as the Messiah and the Christ. And it's through sort of opposition and pushback that the church grows in the book of Acts and expands and scatters and begins to multiply. And it's always been that way. It's always been that way throughout church history ever since the book of Acts. And it's still that way today. It's on the edges where the church is being stomped on and persecuted and pushed against that she thrives, right? Uh, that's just that's just the way that the church works. It's like a fist on water. The water goes everywhere when you bring your fist down on it on a table. Um, an, an ancient church father said that the blood is the seed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's how the church grows. And so we see that increase here, but it's then a problem arises. And through that problem, what's the last verse that we see in this text? Acts 6, now verse 7 says, and the word of God continued to increase. See that? Through this problem, they come up with a solution. They create a system in the church that uh, God blesses and that helps facilitate ministry according to giftings and calling. And the um, the apostles are decided to devote themselves simply to really to folk 
to focus on prayer and preaching the gospel. And there are others that are that are brought into and then ordained full of faith in the spirit to do the important work of service in the church. Mercy ministry. And then verse seven says, and the word of God continued to increase as it does throughout the book of Acts and throughout church history. And the number of the disciples multiplied. There it is greatly in Jerusalem. So see through that press, through that problem, we have a multiplication. And again, it's happening through the proclamation of the word. It's happening through persecution and it's happening as they carry out the commission that's been around since the beginning of, of, uh, of making this, of going out and making disciples and teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded and then saying, go do the same thing. Um, so that is one text that we see and the kind of one, 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 uh, takeaway I just want to take from this text before moving to the other text that's our assignment is Acts 19 is that again, often we, we look at, we look at not just persecution, but problems in our lives, in our culture as setbacks, but really in a kingdom economy, I mean, what's the, what was the greatest problem in the gospels? It was the cross. The cross is the thing that all the gospels drive toward. All the gospels are written around the fact that Christ came to die. They all drive toward Jerusalem and toward our savior being crucified outside the wall. You know, Jesus came for that reason. But it, it's still the biggest problem. It's the worst thing that we've ever done as humans. We crucified God. We crucified God's only son. But it's that very thing that he planned all along to use our evil to save us, to die in our place and to defeat death and to bury our sin and to rise to a new kind of humanity, a new kind of life. And so um, it, it, the church and the power of the church is built on the head of the, the, our head, who is Christ. We are his body as a church. And it is built on the economy of the cross. And the economy of the cross is that God in persecution and problems causes his kingdom to go forth like a fist on water. So when we see, when we see a, a, um, a worldwide pandemic, when we see COVID, when we encounter a problem in our lives, an empty bank account, a lost job, a, a lost loved one, um, neighbors snubbing us so many things that will happen and will are happening if we're sharing the gospel will happen if we do pushback political maybe one maybe we get thrown in jail maybe we get snubbed maybe we lose a job maybe um so many different types of pushback as we have that sort of thing as the church shares the gospel and we get pushback and even personally in our lives and as a church, as we experience loss and suffering and privation um, and problems. God is going to cause his kingdom to grow. It's just the it's the economy of the cross. It's the way that his power goes forward. So I want to encourage you in that. And I wanted to say dig into continuing to make disciples and tell and multiply them and that's that's one of our chief following our master following the blueprint of the book of acts uh, that's one of our chief uh strategies at sojourn galleria is we want to saturate our neighborhoods by um making disciples and i'll and i'll come back to that and then wrap it up but um in acts 19 again our our other text verses 8 through 10 we have a different sort of text in a different lesson, but 
in this, we see multiplication happening again. We see the increase um, of disciples and the multiplication of disciples. But it's in a different way, because in this in this scenario, we, we have the Apostle Paul. And what he's doing is he is, again, through persecution, uh, he's being persecuted by his own countrymen, the Jews. They're rejecting him. And so what does he do? He sees that, again, as an opportunity to go to the Gentiles, and he full force preaches the gospel to them. Now, the different the difference here is that he we see another tactic. He stays in the, in a place for two years. He's in Ephesus, and he stays in Ephesus for two years. And in this hall that's called the Hall of Tyrannus, he teaches in this hall probably for about five hours a day, probably from about lunchtime until until evening. Um, he rents the hall he and the church, and he uses that as a sort of base of operations. And he teaches probably the, all the scriptures. If he has two years and he's doing it five hours a day, it's about 1,800, 2,000 hours total of teaching. Can you imagine that much teaching? He's not just saying the same thing over and over again. He's A lot of the content that we have in his letters, he's showing how Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, that he makes sense of all the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. He makes sense of he is God's plan for human history. He is the way that God is going to uh, fill the earth with his image and restore us to him to, to heal the bone that was broken through Adam and Eve and to begin the process of the restoration of all creation uh, and to be king over it. And so um, that is what Paul is unpacking. You know, the prism, Christ, the scriptures seen through the prism of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing. But he's doing it. My point is, He's doing it with patience and perseverance over the course of two years, teaching day in and day out. Um, and that's really a model of discipleship. We want to pour, we want to search the scriptures. We want to see how they make sense in the light of Christ, how Christ makes sense of the Bible and of all of human history, how we can be wholly devoted to him and obedient to him in every area of life, teaching our disciples to obey him in every area. That means living with them. That means shoulder to shoulder. That means uh, walking with them, sharing our lives with them and showing them as Jesus showed his disciples in every way, here's how to follow Christ, right? And then telling them, go and do the same. That is how world domination and saturation happen. And we see Paul doing that here for two years. And in the verse, the final verse says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, I'm going to repeat that, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul is just staying there for two years. And you might think, well, what can I do staying in a place for years and years? Well, by that time, because Paul was faithful to proclaim the gospel in word and deed consistently, perseveringly, all of Asia, which it's a figure of speech, yes, not every single person in Asia, but that means widespread Asians heard the gospel. It permeated the populace and it permeated the culture. Okay, so our our model is it's not just a proof text. It's not just Matthew 28, the Great Commission. It's not just a few verses in the book of Acts. Acts, what's happening in Acts is what God had been saying from the beginning. Um, multiply, fill the earth with my image. And that has now been accomplished in Christ. And that is what we are called to do. We're in Acts 29 church. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And the last verse is that we see Paul under house arrest in Rome. And what is he doing? He's preaching Christ and his kingdom. Those two things. And so that's our charge. We're in Acts 29 church. And what that means is we, we are carrying on the work that the church has been given to do of preaching the gospel, of making disciples, and of planting churches that plant churches. 
and of making disciples that make disciples. It's the multiplicative effect that leads to saturation. It's not being a megachurch. It's not having coliseums full of people on a three-day crusade. I'm not saying anything against those. I'm saying those aren't God's plan for saturation. Those aren't God's plan for um, for world domination and for taking taking his creation back through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, making disciples is. So we, for that reason, have really, over COVID, redirected our focus on taking the Great Commission seriously and making disciples who make disciples. And for that reason, we are starting D groups, discipleship groups. And the focus of D groups is to make disciples, uh, to disciple one another. And then after the Gen Zero, after that first group where we are in D groups as a church, uh, we during that time, we're praying for unbelievers. We're making lists of those in our lives that don't know the Lord, that are far from God, that we're meeting uh, day by day. We're praying for them. We're reaching out to them relationally and uh, and sharing the gospel with them. And then... God willing, some of them will come to Christ. And after that, after the first D of our D groups, every every generation of D group after Gen Zero, so Gen One and following, God willing, only He can do this, right? But we have a part to play. We have a commission. Is uh, after Gen Zero, every D group is going to be folks that you are sharing Christ with, that have come to Christ, that are new Christians, and that's your group of two to five. Uh, people that are meeting weekly or at the, at the very least every other week, sharing life together, and you are pursuing the Lord together. You're teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. You're taking them through the scriptures, talking, praying together, uh, confessing sin, praying for the lost, going after the lost, and then uh, they are reaching out and doing the same thing after a year or two. Okay, so that's, that's the idea. That's one of the mechanisms we want to sort of impart and to give, to give you at Sojourn Galleria. Uh, and surgeon wide, so the other surgeons are doing this in their own way. Um, but we, we're calling it D group and we want to just get more serious about discipleship because this is God's plan for saturation. And then finally, just, um, so getting a D group, if you're not in one, uh, we're about to release the curriculum in the next few weeks. It's, it's essentially ready. We just need to bind them and, and then get, get them out to you guys. But, um, getting a D group, uh, preferably with a few folks from your parish, single, same, same gender. Um, if not, uh, that's fine. But uh, it don't, they don't have to be sojourn members, but they need to be believers. And then after that, you need, you know, part of it is we, we're going to be w- witnessing, reaching out to um, unbelievers who then come to Christ. And then that's our new D group uh, after Gen Zero. So, so and, and if you need help getting into one, talk to your parish leader, um, talk to one of your elders, and we will be super glad to help you do that. So that's, that's saturation. Um, and saturation really, again, through our model, it happens as we, we feel called to these distinct geographies that God's put us in. For us, it's the Galleria area of Houston. For others at Sojourn, it's Montrose or Heights or Spring Branch or Oak Forest. And we, you know, we don't, we, we don't, we don't see ourselves as commuter churches. We preached last week on how we're a family and we're committed to local ministry. And that's really that value that we see. If we're a family, the church is a family of God, which it is. It's not a building we go to once a week. Then we need families share life together. They, they love each other. They spend time together. They live close, healthy families, right? So we live in the areas God's called us to. We minister to those around us. And yes, we want to grow into global mission. Absolutely. But huge thing is that, I mean, so Houston is a city of, uh, it's a global city and it's the most multi, um, ethnically diverse city, maybe in history. And so we have the nations in our backyard. We have the nations as neighbors, and we need to be reaching out 
to the, those around us. And as they come to Christ, our church is going to look increasingly like the nations, which we want it to. We want our church to look like our geographies. And so uh, owning our the lostness in our geographies, uh, saturating them. We want to see a house church on every or a parish on every on every block. And some folks are going, wait, we have we have two parishes on on three blocks. We don't need a third. Well, actually, we do. We need we need a house church, a burning and bright, shining light, um, salt on the stake on every street, on every block. And so we want that. We want to see that. And we want to equip uh, you to do the work of the ministry, um, Ephesians 4, that we've been called to. So um, that and and then simplicity finally just there's so much here but i'm not i'm not going to i don't want to take time to share it but i think that it's a corollary to saturation because we can't commit to this work that's not a, it's not the great suggestion it's the great commission our king has commissioned us and commanded us to go make disciples who make disciples and so um we need to prioritize in our lives we need to prioritize give lots of space as a church not to programs and all hanging out together, although we want to we want to gather, but only to scatter. Right. Um, but we need to prioritize time with the lost time with our neighbors, time with our coworkers, time with with those that we're meeting in shops that we um, patronize. And so. Having them into our homes, having conversations, sitting down for a drink, um, sharing the gospel with uh, loving them, listening to them. And so we, we have a strategy for that. That's all sort of in that discipleship curriculum that multiple we're going to call multiply uh, and get and get out to you guys and and uh, integrate you into. But um, we we going to have to to commit to prioritizing discipleship and multiplying and saturation. We have to we have to commit to simplifying because we're just too busy. There's too much simplifying, getting rid of stuff. Yes. Stuff that clutters our lives, materialism, really waging war on that. And, um, but also time, just saying no to a lot of things so that we can say yes to the few things. And, you know, I think of the, the time, the words of Jesus to Mary resonate where he, Martha's doing all sorts of things, um, trying to get the meal ready and for Jesus and his apostles. And, and that's good stuff that she's doing. And the stuff that you're doing is good stuff. But um, Mar- Martha marches in and she says, hey, tell, essentially tell Mary to come in the kitchen with me. She's just sitting there listening to you. And Jesus actually gently reprimands Martha. The cultural thing to do would have been to say, yeah, Mary, this is not your place. This is all dudes and you're sitting here and you should be helping your poor sister who's slaving, making us food. But he doesn't say that because he knows who he is. And he knows he's about to go to the cross and he knows that he's the most important thing. God, throughout the scriptures, demands our worship. And Jesus shows up and does this as a man and it offends people to the point where they, the religious leaders who, who know that, uh, to be a mere human and to, and to require that kind of attention is, is blasphemy. It's idolatrous and so they crucify him. But of course he's not a mere human. He's fully human and God himself in the flesh. And so uh, Jesus knows who he is. And he says, look, this is the best thing for her. And it's the best thing for you is to sit at my feet. And he says, you know, Martha, you're worried about many things, but there's really only one thing. And Mary has chosen that one thing. And it will never be taken from her. That one thing that she's chosen will, will have 
a sort of atomic explosive power that will ripple throughout the centuries. Um, and she'll never regret sitting at my feet. And so I think, how do we do that? How do we soak in Christ so that we can go out and tell others about the good news of Jesus and his kingdom and what he's done and what he offers and what he invites us into with open arms and uh, the fact that he's alive and he's in us and he's beckoning others to come join him and come join us. Um, how do we make time for the lost in our lives? How do we make time for, for Jesus himself and for um, spreading that gospel and for embracing the persecution and the problems that it, that it, that it causes, that it brings, because that's part of it. We're going to have to say no to a lot of the good stuff. And that's going to mean that we're going to look countercultural increasingly. And that's not just okay. It's, it's as it should be, but we also need to be in the cultures that we're reaching. Right. So how do we, how are we in the world, but not of it? And that's, that's the trick, isn't it? To keep our faces fixed on Jesus. So, um, saturation and simplicity. I'm not going to give more answers on that. I, I'm simply saying those are values that I think are biblical values that we've committed to as, as a body of believers at Sojourn. And so we need to really think and pray constantly about, Lord, would you make us these kind of people? How do we? You're with us. You're never going to leave us or forsake us. You've commissioned us to go and make disciples. And so who make disciples? And so help us and let's do it together. Okay. Love you guys.